The gospel is about what God does, not about what we do. The fundamental storyline of the Bible is about what God does for us that we could not do for ourselves. It is about how God finds us and saves us and restores to us all that we lost through rebellion, defection, and sin. This vision was meant to encourage Abraham. Remember, Abraham was feeling depressed. He was experiencing doubts. He wasn't sure that he could do what God said was going to be done through him. So this is God encouraging Abraham. This is God saying, I will do for you what I am going to do through you. (laughs) That's amazing. That's the gospel. And that points us forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. I will do for you what I'm going to do through you. What an amazing promise. And what an amazing picture of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. Genesis chapter 15 might be one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. Its twin themes of grace and faith take us right into the very center of the biblical gospel. Here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 15. This is one of the most important chapters in the Old Testament. It is quoted frequently in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul and also by the Apostle James. Let me quote Derek Kidner at some length here. He says, The New Testament finds this a momentous chapter in two respects. First, in its declaration that Abram was justified by faith, a phrase at the heart of Paul's gospel in Romans 4 and Galatians 3, and secondly, in its record of the covenant. For this, rather than Sinai's, was the fundamental covenant, and it spoke of grace and not law. Closed quote. So, It's an important chapter for two different reasons, so we'll try to keep our eyes on both of those reasons as we make our way through the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, I mentioned back when we were discussing chapter 12 that Abraham is called the father of faith, and therefore we read his story looking to learn about the life of faith. Abraham is faith-illustrated. And we learn some terribly important things about faith in this story. The first thing we learn is that faith means believing in the word and promise of God despite what your eyes might see. 
Abraham saw that he was getting old. Maybe his hair was getting thin. Maybe his pants weren't fitting the way they used to. Maybe he was tired after his campaign to redeem his nephew Lot. Whatever it was that he saw, he knew what it meant. It meant that he was old and past the point of having children. He knew that his wife was old, and therefore he knew that in all likelihood he would die without a natural heir, and he brings that concern to the Lord. And the Lord tells him that he will have a son, and that his offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the heavens. And despite everything Abraham saw, despite all that he knew, about how the world worked and how bodies worked and how he was feeling. Despite all of that, Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. Faith is believing God's word over and above what you see and think to be true. Now, time and again, This verse is quoted in the New Testament. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 4.3, For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So Paul says that a person isn't saved by doing a bunch of works. He is saved by believing in what God says and what God does on his behalf. The apostle James quoted this text as well, though he added that faith must show itself in proving works. And he cites the example of Abraham offering Isaac on the altar in Genesis 22. Paul quotes it again in Galatians 3, 6-7, saying, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So Paul there says that the offspring, who are more numerous than the stars of the heavens, that doesn't refer to Abraham's physical children, but ultimately it refers to his spiritual children. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So, salvation is by faith. Membership in the covenant community of Abraham is by faith. That's important for us to see. But what does it mean that Abraham's faith was counted to him as righteousness? How does that work? Is that like when you play skee-ball and you you earn a certain number of tickets that you can then go and exchange for candy or stuffed animals? Right? How does does this work? D.A. Carson says very usefully here, he says, this does not mean that Abram earned brownie points for deploying such a righteous faith. Rather, the idea is that what God demands of his image bearers, what he has always demanded, is righteousness. But in this sinful race, what he accepts, crediting it as righteousness, is faith. Faith that acknowledges our dependence upon God and takes God at his word, closed quote. That is so incredibly helpful. God accepts faith, faith that understands that we are being helped by a gracious God, faith that understands that we require help from a gracious God, and faith that takes God at his word. God accepts that, and in mercy, as grace, 
credits that as righteousness. Thanks be to God. Amen. Pastor Paul, you say in the program audio, and I said in the introduction to this episode, that Genesis 15 might be one of the most important chapters in the entire Old Testament. And a lot of that has to do with the definition of faith that really begins to come into clarity here in this scene in the Abrahamic narrative. Yeah, I'm starting to feel a little bit like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. If you've listened to a bunch of his sermons, every sermon he says, this is the most important chapter in the Bible, or this is the most important theme. But in a sense, we, we are going through some of the foundational chapters, foundational stories. I mean, not for nothing is Abraham called the father of faith. And again, not because he invented it, not because he was the first person to have it, but because his story so perfectly illustrates it. Okay, so what is this part of his story saying about the nature of saving faith? Well, as I say in the program audio, faith is about acknowledging our need for God and taking God at his word. I think I stole that from D.A. Carson. So we might, we might say that it's about humility and it's about trust. Now, I think most Christians would have guessed at the trust part, but unpack the humility part for us. Yeah, I think you're right. Most of us understand faith and trust as overlapping themes. But in the Bible, humility is a part of the mix, too. The first beatitude, for example, is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit literally means to acknowledge our bankruptcy before God. To be poor in spirit is to be like the tax collector in Jesus' parable who stands far off and who won't even lift his eyes towards heaven and who prays, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So that's humility. That's the starting place of biblical faith. And then trust, of course, means believing what God says more than believing what you feel, believing it more than what you see, believing it even more than what you think. Isaiah 66, 2 says, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. So that's the the person who goes home justified. That's the person who receives the kingdom of heaven. That's faith. Now, Abraham's story is going to add a few more illustrations and flourishes to that definition, but that is the heart and substance of what the Bible means when it talks about faith. Okay, that's very helpful. Let's jump back into our story at verse 7. We jump back into the text at verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over and against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Now, in the ancient Near East, covenant cutting was a fairly common way of formalizing arrangements between a superior and an inferior. Commonly, the king or the the chief would promise to provide protection and justice, and then the lesser party would promise to provide 
food for the Lord's table, a few trained men for the army, a portion of his produce and profit, and loyal obedience to the king's word and law. And then to seal the deal, the lesser party would usually pass through the severed carcasses of a variety of sacrificial animals as a way of saying, let it be so done to me if I should fail in any of my obligations to the king. So this is God speaking to Abraham in a language that Abraham would have understood. This is God assuring Abraham that they are in formal relationship. Remember, this all began because Abraham was afraid and was wrestling with some doubts. So this is God assuring Abraham, I am with you in this. We are bound together. We are in formal covenant relationship. Verse 12 goes on to say, As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So here God shares some of the timing and some of the reasons for the timing with Abraham. Abraham has been wondering when he will start to receive the things that God has promised. You remember that God promised offspring and a land. Well, Abraham doesn't have either of those things at this point in the story. And so God begins to explain the timing. He tells Abraham that he cannot possess the land of Canaan at this point because God is waiting until the sins of the Amorites justify their dispossession. So he has a plan whereby the children will go down into Egypt Sort of like sending your child off to boarding school, right? He will learn a great deal and have to fight through some bullying and mischief, but it will make a man of him such that he is ready and prepared to face the world. And the timing will coincide perfectly with God's justice in judging the Amorites. By the time Israel is ready to be a nation, the Amorites will be ready for judgment and dispossession. And the point here, I think, is that God is capable of working a multifaceted plan. He is simultaneously pursuing plans of judgment and salvation. God is always all of who he is in all of what he does. Thanks be to God. Verse 17 says, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day... The Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Now, this is by far the most remarkable section in the chapter. You remember that in a normal covenant-cutting ceremony, the lesser party passes through the pieces as a way of pronouncing a self-maledictory oath, right? Let it be done so to me if I fail in my obligations to the master. But here, God 
passes through the pieces under the symbols of a smoking pot and a flaming torch. God says that he will bear the curse for our covenant failures. God, in essence, promises to keep our end of the bargain. He assumes our side of the deal. Peter Gentry says here, the fact that only God passes between the pieces is quite remarkable and shows that the promise depends upon him and him alone, close quote. Are you hearing that? You see, the gospel is about what God does, not about what we do. The fundamental storyline of the Bible is about what God does for us that we could not do for ourselves. It is about how God finds us and saves us and restores to us all that we lost through rebellion, defection, and sin. This vision was meant to encourage Abraham. Remember, Abraham was feeling depressed. He was experiencing doubts. He wasn't sure that he could do what God said was going to be done through him. So this is God encouraging Abraham. This is God saying, I will do for you what I am going to do through you. (laughs) That's amazing. That's the gospel. And that points us forward to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one, ultimately, who keeps our end of the deal. He fulfills our covenant obligations. He pays for our covenant failures, such that if we are children of Abraham through faith, then we can be sure that we will inherit all of the promises of God. That's why the Apostle Paul says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In Christ, we have kept our end of the deal because Christ has kept our end of the deal. He obeyed God perfectly and he paid the price for our covenant failures. Therefore, in Christ, we now inherit all of the promises of God. (laughs) That's the gospel. That's what Abraham saw, believed, and rested in. Jesus said in John 8, 56, Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now, what did Abraham see about Jesus? Did he see him born in Bethlehem? No. Did he see him walk on water? No. Did he see him multiply the loaves and fishes? No. So what did he see? He saw God doing for him what he could never do for himself and paying for what he did do and would do in his own person and at his own cost. He saw the gospel. He saw Jesus. Thanks be to God. Amen. Now, Pastor Paul, a lot of the meaning in this story is embedded in ancient Near Eastern rituals that are, well, totally foreign to 21st century Western readers. You mentioned a covenant-cutting ceremony and a self-maledictory curse. Walk us through that. What are you talking about there? You're absolutely right. In, in the ancient world, covenants, of course, were very common. We, we don't tend to use that t- type of language anymore. We don't think that way. But it was part of the context in those days. Most of these covenants would have been made between a greater power and a lesser power. So we imagine, for example, the Pharaoh of Egypt making a covenant 
with a minor Amorite chieftain or or the king of Assyria making a covenant with the king of the Medes or something along those lines. The greater power would promise to provide peace and safety and good governance. And then the lesser power would promise aid in times of war and 300 bushels of wheat per year, whatever. Then to seal the deal, they would take a number of sacrificial animals, cut them in half and pull them apart. And by so doing, they would create a sort of pathway of blood. Then the lesser party, the minor Amorite chieftain, would walk down the pathway of blood and say, so may it be done to me if I fail to honor my commitments and obligations to my Lord. So that's the pattern. That's that's the normal way that covenants were cut. And so understanding that makes the details in this story really jump out. We expect Abraham to walk down the pathway of blood. But instead of Abraham, God, under the figure of the firepot and the flaming torch, God walks down the pathway of blood. It's as if God is saying to Abraham, when you fail in your covenant obligations, which you will, I will pay the price for your rebellion. I will walk the pathway of blood. I will guarantee your end of this deal. This is God saying that the blessings he is promising to release into the world through the family of Abraham will happen. His plan will not be thwarted by the failure or disobedience of Abraham's descendants. And of course, that promise culminates and climaxes in the life and death of Jesus Christ. He walks the pathway of blood. He pays for our covenant failures and he secures the blessings that God had promised to give. That's the gospel. Amen. And well, that brings us back to that verse that you've quoted now a few times for us from 2 Corinthians 1.20, quote, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That's why it's through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Yeah, exactly right. Jesus did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He kept the whole law for his people. He did everything Adam was supposed to do, and he did everything Israel was supposed to do. He is the perfectly obedient son, and he paid for all the covenant failures of God's people. He walked the pathway of blood. He paid the price, and he unlocked the blessings. That's what we mean when we say Jesus did it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. And that great gospel story goes all the way back to the promise that God makes right here in Genesis 15. Wow. That is incredibly helpful. I love that. And I can't wait to hear more about that in the weeks and the episodes to come. And as always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and with other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. We'll see you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.